All right, we're going to begin this morning uh, and w- with a question and an invitation. The invitation is for you to find um, in your Bibles Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 1 and verse 6 through chapter 2 and verse 10. A story that's very, very familiar. Uh, I'm sure most of you who have uh, been around church for some period of time or have read through the biblical text are familiar with this story. It's a story of Moses' birth. Um, But it's much, much, much more than that. I mean, that's on the surface, but there's so much going on behind the scenes that I'm excited to be able to show you some of the things that are going on below the surface in this very familiar story. Speaking of familiar stories, my question is, how many of you have seen the movie The Wizard of Oz? Okay, probably a more appropriate question. How many of you have seen The Wizard of Oz more than 20 times? All right, some of the same hands are up. Uh, That would be me as well. I mean, it's just a part of who we are in our culture is The Wizard of Oz. And it's interesting, at the end of the movie The Wizard of Oz, a discovery is made. And that discovery is that the Wizard of Oz has no power. Now, Dorothy and her traveling companions have made their journey to the great city of Oz, and they've done so under this ominous cloud of fear that the great and grand Wizard of Oz is this feared person. But in reality, at the end of the movie... They find out that he's just a timid old man. And, and you remember the, the point in the movie where, where Toto, the little puppy, pulls back the curtain and reveals this timid old man who says, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Now, that's the Wizard of Oz. You see, behind the curtain of reality was just a scared little man. But he had a reputation of being the great and grand wizard of Oz. Someone to be feared. But all it took was a little puppy to pull back the curtain and show us the truth. And this morning, in this text, in Exodus chapter 1, Moses is going to pull back the curtain of reality and show us who's really in control. Now, for all appearances, and on the surface, there's no doubt that it appeared that Pharaoh was in control. I'm I'm, I'm very, very confident that Pharaoh himself believed that he was the one pushing all the buttons and spinning all the wheels, that he was the one who was in charge. I'm pretty confident Pharaoh felt like that. I'm equally confident that the Egyptians believed that their ruler, their supreme authority was the one in charge and in control. I'm confident that the Egyptians believed that their king, the most powerful man on earth, was the one in control. And I'm I'm just as sure that the Hebrews, the Israelites, living under 
Pharaoh and his oppression believed that Pharaoh was the one who was in charge. He was the one pushing all the buttons. But Moses pulls back the curtain of reality and shows us who's really in charge, who's really controlling the show. Now, as we look into this text, as we pull back the curtain of reality, we're going to see three primary things. Fear, irony, and providence. Fear, irony, and providence. So let's take them one by one. First, let's consider fear. Fear is um, an interesting concept biblically. Unfortunately, like Dorothy and her traveling companions, the cowardly lion, the tin man, the scarecrow, unfortunately, like Dorothy and the rest of her traveling companions, we have a problem with misplaced fear. We fear this when we should fear that. They were afraid of the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy was frightened, and she shouldn't have been. Now, biblically, fear appears in the pages of the Bible many, many times. It's an interesting concept, biblically. How many of you know what command is found in the Bible more than any other command? Yeah, most people would think and probably offer up, uh, love one another. Love one another is found a lot in the Bible, but it's not found more than any uh, or all the other commands. Pray a lot. No, it's fear not. Do not be afraid. Now, why do you think God would put that command in the Bible more than he puts any other command? Why does God tell us more than he tells us any other thing? Don't be afraid. Why? Well, I I think it's because the world's a scary place. Don't you? The world's a scary place. How many of you have, have observed in the time that God has allotted you on this earth, how many of you have observed that circumstances are not always friendly and in our favor? How many of you have observed that circumstances are unpredictable? You can't prognosticate and figure out what's going to happen this afternoon, tomorrow, two weeks from now. Five years from now. You're not in control of that. Circumstances are unpredictable and often uncomfortable. world's a scary place. And how about people? My observation is that people can be downright, downright dangerous. What is it that's, besides circumstances, that has disturbed your security in life? What is it that has caused damage and hurt in your life? Is it not people that you can't control? I mean, God just sends, seems to send them into our lives and, and they disappoint us and they hurt us and they say things and they do things. And 
I don't know. If I look at circumstances and I look at people, the world's a scary place. So to me, it's no wonder that God says, more than he says any other thing, don't be afraid. Fear me, but don't fear that. Living in a scary world gives us all kinds of phobias, right? Normal phobias, abnormal phobias. Um, normal phobias would kind of be along the lines of arachnophobia. How many of you have arachnophobia? Some of you know what it is, yeah. Uh, all right, for those of you who don't know what arachnophobia is, it's fear of spiders. So now, how many of you have arachnophobia? Probably every female hand ought to go up here. Yeah. Arachnophobia, we understand it. Uh, hydrophobia. Hydrophobia is the fear of water. Anybody here? Hydrophobia? I mean, it's kind of a normal fear. It's not outside the bounds of normality. Good, I didn't see any hands go up, but... Those are kind of normal phobias, but we have abnormal phobias as well. I just found out on this trip back to the States that my older daughter, Hope, I don't know what name this is, I've got to look it up. She has a fear of balloons. Yeah. A fear of balloons. That's an odd one for me. What happened in this girl's life that gave her a fear of balloons? There are strange phobias like chitophobia. Is it what in the world is chitophobia? Well, it's the fear of hair. Yeah, and I think if I encountered any of those three hairdos, that would put me in chitophobia. Then there's pilotophobia. What is pilotophobia? Well, let's go to the other extreme. That's the fear of bald people. Yeah. And there are some people here who may have that fear. There are some people here who would cause that fear. Pilotophobia. Uh, then there's odontophobia, which is the fear of teeth, or in this case, fear of the lack of teeth. That is some nasty-looking smiles going on there. Odontophobia. Then there's thermophobia. Thermophobia. How many of you have that? Yeah, you don't know it. Everybody in here has got that. Everybody in here. You, you, you'll, you'll nod in recognition when I show you what it is. Thermophobia Is the fear that while you're showering, someone will sneak into the bathroom, flush the toilet, and scald or freeze you. Yeah? Yeah? Thermophobia. How I many of you have got thermophobia? <laughs> then there's phobophobia. And that's just the fear of being afraid. What's the matter? Well, I don't know. What are you afraid of? I, I, I don't know, something. Phobophobia. Fear of being afraid. Fear is a huge concept in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. Let's read the text together. You've found the text. I want to invite your attention to it as we read this passage together. And as we read it, we're going to encounter fear, irony, and providence. Um, first we'll focus on fear. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. Now I want you to notice here in verse 7 how the author just compiles his repetitions 
in order to prove the point that the Hebrews were growing. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay, you get the point? Is, is the author clear? Exceedingly fruitful. Very numerous. The land was filled with them. Modern day East Texas vernacular. There was a lot of folks. It was a lots of Hebrews running around. Lots and lots of them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come. Again, now watch how the author just compounds his repetitions here in order to demonstrate what's going on. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. We're concerned about these people. We're fearing these people because they're going to grow more numerous. We've got to deal shrewdly with them. Now look at verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, what happened? The more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Why does he repeat himself? He's really emphasizing how difficult Pharaoh and the Egyptians are making life for the Israelites. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and Puah, When you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, and they let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you the boys They're not like Egypt. They're vigorous for the midwives. To the midwives, he gave them family. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Not just to the midwives now, to all the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. 
So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Fears and phobias, and there are a lot of them in this text. Let's just take them one by one. Let's consider Pharaoh and his fear, the Egyptians and their fears. Then we'll look at us and consider what it is we often fear when we should fear something else. And then we'll look at the midwives and consider their fear. God had blessed his people while they were in Egypt. And as the text tells us, with a lot of repetition, they had increased and grown in number. They had multiplied greatly. There were a lot of Hebrews living in Egypt. And Pharaoh saw them as a threat. What was Pharaoh's fear? Pharaoh's fear was pedophobia. Fear of children. Can you imagine? The most powerful man on the planet was afraid of little boys. Now, not literally in the sense that he would look at a little boy and freak out, but Pharaoh was afraid of what those little boys represented. And what did they represent? What did Pharaoh understand that those little baby boys were going to grow up to be? Strong fighting men. So in order to eliminate the threat, he had to decrease the population of the Israelites. Or, as the text tells us, these people are going to become so numerous that they will join our enemies, rebel against us, and leave the country. So in order to try to curb the population growth, Pharaoh came up with plan A, but he had a plan B in his back pocket. What was plan A? Plan A, work them to death. Harsh labor. Treat them ruthlessly. Increase the expectation for their productivity, but decrease their resources. Work them to death. But the text tells us that the more they treated them harshly and the more they worked them ruthlessly, what happened? the more they increased. All right, so plan A is not working. Plan B, what is plan B? Kill them. Kill the baby boys. Because if we don't kill these baby boys, one day they're going to be Hebrew men. We got to get rid of them. Pharaoh was afraid. Pedophobia, fear of children. What about the Egyptians? What was their fear? The, the Egyptians had xenophobia, fear of foreigners. Verse 12 is, is, is very clear when it tells us this. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They were dreading the foreign people within their land because of the threat they posed. 
when they saw the growth of the Hebrew people, they became very afraid. And, and the Hebrew word that is used in this text, dread, is a, is a very strong term that means profound terror or alarm. Profound terror and alarm. Pharaoh and the Egyptians were afraid. But what about us? What's our fear? What is it that we often fear when we should fear something else? Now, the Bible tells us that there's only one place that we appropriately place our fear. Where is that? In God. Fear God. But it's interesting as you look into the Old Testament and all the way into the New Testament, there's, there's something that we fear instead of fearing God. There's something that competes with the fear of God. And you know what it is? It's anthrophobia, the fear of man. The fear of man. Being more concerned about other people and their opinions and their evaluations of us than we are about simply considering what God expects of us and what God wants of us. And rather than walk in obedience to God, we oftentimes fear the opinions of our peers. Fear of man. Now, let me ask you a question. Be honest here. Pretend you're not in church and you have to answer right. No, be honest. If you had been a Hebrew living at this time, under this oppression, who would you have been afraid of? Yeah, somebody who's honest over here. Pharaoh. Absolutely. That makes total sense. The text tells us that Pharaoh was making their lives miserable. He was oppressing them, and their lives were bitter. In verse 12, it says that Pharaoh oppressed them. Again, this is a strong Hebrew term. In other places in the Old Testament, this word for oppressed, what Pharaoh was doing to the, to the Israelites, in other places in the Old Testament, this is the word for rape. Pharaoh robbed them of their dignity. Pharaoh oppressed them physically. And the text tells us he made their lives bitter. Makes sense that they would have been afraid of Pharaoh. So let me ask you a question. Who are the Pharaohs in your life? Who is it in your life that stands behind the curtain, pushes all the buttons, spins all the wheels, and causes you to be afraid? Who is it that stands behind the curtain, and because of the way they deal with you and they deal with others, you, you, you live in fear and believe that they're in control? A parent? child? A sibling? A boss? 
co-worker, an uncertain economic future, an uncertain political future. There, there are all kinds of peoples that can become pharaohs in our lives. And, and, and unfortunately, we live in fear as we allow other people, because of the fear that we misplace in them, we allow those other people to control us. Pharaoh was afraid, the Egyptians were afraid, often we're afraid, but like Dorothy, we fear the wrong thing. What about the midwives? Who did they fear? Did you notice in the text who they feared? The text didn't stutter. The text didn't not say who they feared. What was their fear? Their fear was theophobia, the fear of God. Verse 17 and verses 20 and 21 are explicit about this. In this situation of oppression, look at what the text says. The midwives, however, what? Feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. So God was kind to the midwives, in verse 20, and the people increased and became even more numerous, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Two women, Sifra and Pua, are monuments to the fear of God in the worst of all considerable circumstances. They feared God. They didn't sweat Pharaoh. They feared God. And the text, again, is explicit in telling us that God rewarded them precisely because, what? They feared God. They disobeyed Pharaoh because they understood they had an authority that was much higher than Pharaoh. And they feared him. Moses' parents feared God. How do we know that? How do we know that? Well, later on in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, here's what we read. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Okay, if they weren't afraid of the king's edict, who did they fear? Moses' parents feared God. The midwives feared God. Let me ask you a question. Knowing what you know about the Bible, is the fear of God a big deal in the Bible? Yeah, I think so. Let me just show you one verse from Hebrews of many, many, many verses in Hebrews. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Many verses tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it's the beginning of wisdom. And folks, if you want to hit a home run and arrive at wisdom, what do you got to do to get to first play? First base. You got to start with the fear of the Lord. That's, that's, that's the beginning that's first base. The fear of the Lord. Ecclesiastes, I mean, you, you can't get any clearer than this. 
in terms of the importance of the fear of the Lord. Now all has been heard. All right? Here's the conclusion of the matter. Let's just sum this thing up and make it as simple as we can make it. Here it is. Fear God and keep His commandments. Boom. That's it. For this is a little bit of what God expects of you. Is that what the text says? For this is the, what? Whole duty of man. What is it that God expects of us? Well, we're not going to complicate it. We're going to summarize it. We're going to make it really, really simple. Here's the conclusion of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. Keep His commandments. That's it. Why? Because God's going to bring every deed into judgment. Including every hidden thing. Whether it's good or bad. Whether it's good or evil. God sees everything. And because God sees everything, you better fear Him. Take Him seriously. Take Him into account. I don't know. Reading that, I think the fear of God is a not an incidental thing. Fear. Pharaoh had his fears. The Egyptians had their fears. Unfortunately, we often have our fears. But let's be like those two Hebrew women and fear God. I think there's a principle here in this text that applies to all of us all the time, and it's this. We often fear the worst when we should fear God. We often fear the worst when we should fear God. So often, folks, unfortunately, our, our fears are misplaced like Dorothy. Our fears are put here and being concerned about this and that and the other. And, and, and God says, fear me. We often fear the worst when we should fear God. That's fear. Now let's consider irony. I love this part. I love this part. What is irony? Well, we're going to we're going to take it a couple of different ways. I'm going to define it for you, then I'm going to illustrate it, and then I'm going to show you five providential ironies that are in this text. Irony. And here's the principle. God always, or God turns the tables and always wins in the end. God turns the tables and always wins in the end. ¿Cuántos aquí hablan español? ¿Cuántos aquí? Algunos, okay. See, in Spanish, I love this better. In Spanish, that phrase, that idiomatic phrase, doesn't work. God turns the tables and always wins in the end. So when I was putting this together to do it in Spanish, I had to find an idiomatic phrase, a way, an expression, a way of saying this that communicates the same idea, but so that folks that speak Spanish will get it. And it's better in Spanish. Dios le da vuelta a la tortilla y siempre gana. See, isn't that good? Dios le da vuelta a la tortilla y siempre gana. See, God turns the tables doesn't fit in the Latin mind, but God flips the tortilla and always wins. Yeah. Yeah. Dios le da vuelta a la tortilla y siempre gana. What is irony? 
What is irony? Well, here's a, here's a dictionary definition of irony. The incongruence between what might be expected and what actually occurs. Hey, you expect this, but this is what happens. Dios le da vuelta a la tortilla y siempre gana. You think it's going this way? And God says, no, no, it's going this way. Now, let me, let me and you saw this in, in the text, didn't you? When Pharaoh tried to work them to death in order to decrease the population, what happened? They increased. When God tried to kill the babies to decrease the population, what happened? They increased. Dios le da vuelta. God turns the tables. So let me illustrate it a couple of ways so that you get, get the idea. This is Voltaire, an old, dead French philosopher. Voltaire is kind of the modern, or, or the, the, the old equivalent of our modern-day angry atheist, like uh, Christopher Hitchens or uh, Richard Dawkins. They're not just atheists, they're mad about it. God doesn't exist, and, and I'm mad at it. Angry atheists. Well, that was Voltaire back in the 1600s. Voltaire, because he lived in the age of enlightenment, when rationalism was becoming rampant, Voltaire once made this proclamation. In 25 years, because we are learning so much, in 25 years, the Bible will be a forgotten book and Christianity, a forgotten religion. All right? You got it? 25 years, Voltaire said, the Bible will be a forgotten book. Now, here's what happened. 40 years after his death in 1778, the Bible and other Christian literature were being printed in what used to be Voltaire's house. Yeah, that's irony. Get it? Another example, Adolf Hitler. What was Hitler's objective? Exterminate the Jews. Take over the world and exterminate the Jews. Sound familiar? Maybe a little bit to the text we're considering, exterminate the Jews? Now, what happened? His goal was to exterminate the Jews. The irony is, three years after his death in 1945, in 1948, the nation of Israel was established largely due to all of his efforts. You get the, get the concept of irony. The incongruence between what might be expected and what actually occurs. There are many more, but let me just share with you five providential ironies that arise from this text. Folks, and God is doing this to demonstrate beyond any shadow of a doubt, He is in control. So what are some of the ironies that come out of this story? Well, here's one. A child 
hidden for fear of discovery by Pharaoh, ends up being raised openly in Pharaoh's palace. Pharaoh's intention was to kill babies by water, but Moses' life was spared. How? Pharaoh feared foreigners, but he was undone by his own family. Irony? I think so. Pharaoh feared many Hebrew men fighting against him, but it was two Hebrew women who feared God that brought him down. What do you think, B? Pharaoh thinks it's baby boys that he has to destroy, but it's actually adult women who destroy him. The Hebrews, it's the midwives and the Egyptians. His own daughter. What do you think? A little bit of irony in this text? Dios le da vuelta a la tortilla. Y siempre gana. God turns the tables and what? Always wins. You think it's going this way? God says, no, nah, it's going this way. I'm going to turn you inside out. Fear, irony, all the demonstration of God's providence, which is our third concept, providence. What is providence? What is providence? Well, here's a definition. The care and control exercised by God, or God's guidance and governance of everything. Those are kind of fancy theological definitions for providence the way God guides and governs all things. Basically, it means this. Whatever happens, God's in control. Whatever happens, God has planned it, and God will accomplish his purpose through whatever happens. God is in control. I think the principle is this. God steers the ship no matter who has the wheel. And I'm very confident that that Pharaoh believed that I've got the wheel. I'm taking this thing where I want it to go. I'm in control of the harsh labor laws. I'm in control of the extermination laws. <laughs> but God said, Bud, you may have the wheel, but I'm steering the ship. I'm taking this thing where I want it to go. You're trying to decrease the population? Watch me circumvent all of your efforts to decrease with increase. You're trying to stop something from happening? Watch who gets born. God steers the ship no matter who has the wheel. God's in control. God, or or Pharaoh can, can issue all of the edicts he wants to issue. God says, I'm going to accomplish my purpose. Do whatever you want. Moses' mother trusted the providence of God. 
How do I know that? Because the text tells us that Moses' mother placed, and that Hebrew word means to carefully put in a location. In Spanish, colocar. She placed, carefully placed, her little baby in a basket. Oh, that Hebrew term for basket is the Hebrew word for ark. And did you notice that she, she put tar and pitch in the ark, the basket? Does that remind you of another ark that you may have read about in an earlier book? An ark that was coated with tar and pitch? And what was the function of that first ark in the book of Genesis? It was to save lives by water, right? So Moses' mother takes her little baby and she tars and pitches the ark and she puts him on the waters. And by the way, her carefully placing her little baby boy in the basket in the ark was not an act of abandonment. We're told in the text that the sister was watching, right? To see what was going to happen. It wasn't an act of abandonment. It would be the equivalent of putting a baby in a basket on a doorstep and ringing the doorbell. What's, what's the purpose of doing that? You want someone to find the baby, right? Here's the baby. So she puts the baby in the ark on the waters hoping that the baby boy is going to be found. And the baby boy is found. And the person who finds the baby boy, an assistant to Pharaoh's daughter, says, hey, would you like for me to go and find a Hebrew woman to take care of this baby that we just found? Yes, go. So she goes and she finds the baby's mother. And they bring the baby's mother back and they said, you nurse your baby. The mother is now going to nurse her baby. Oh, and more than that, we'll pay you to nurse your baby. The text told us that. Oh, and more than that, the baby's found, the mother's found, asked to nurse the baby, paid to nurse the baby, and the baby grows up where? In Pharaoh's palace. Who's steering this ship? God caused all of this to happen. That's providence. We don't understand all of the pieces. There was not a single person in this story who understood what was happening at the time. But God was putting all of the pieces together. And we look back and go, wow. Say, well, you know, I, I just don't know, man. This is a modern age, you know. We got all kinds of technology and stuff. I, I just don't believe in providence. Okay. Fair enough. You don't believe in providence? You don't believe that God's controlling everything that happens? 
What do you believe? What is your alternative theory? Well, I don't believe in providence. I just believe that, kind of like Forrest Gump, you know? Everything's just kind of floating on this little feather of fate and fortune. And when the feather falls on you, it's going to take you some unplanned place and everything's just random and, and, and we're just kind of floating along like Forrest Gump's feather. Just blind luck. Random chance. And that's a theory. This gives you comfort. Well, you know, maybe it's not blind luck or... Fortune or fate? Coincidence? Maybe it's the star of above. We're just dragged along and all of our lives are controlled by these forces high, high above us that none of us can see. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. I, I know what it is. I don't believe in providence. I don't believe God's in control of everything. I believe I am. Uh-huh. And this gives you comfort. <laughs> Folks, if I'm in control, or if you're in control, or we're all collectively in control together, I'm not feeling too good about that. I know me. I know what I can control and what I can't control. But if there is a God, an all-powerful, holy, supreme God, who is sovereign and in control, and he is taking everything that happens to his good purposes, as uncomfortable as it may be, that gives me confidence. So what's the point? <laughs> we fear the worst when we should fear God. Dios le da vuelta a la tortilla siempre gana. God turns the tables and always wins. And God steers the ship no matter who has the wheel. What's the point? I mean, it's real simple. God has complete control. Fear him and him alone. Fear him and him alone. See, uh, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. He's no threat. He really is no threat. He's just smoking mirrors. He's just pushing buttons and spinning wheels. But... He's not really someone to be feared. Pay no attention to that Pharaoh behind the curtain. He huffed and he puffed and God tore his house down. See, don't fear Pharaoh because despite all of his efforts, the deliverer was born. Moses was born. And Moses delivered his people from Egyptian bondage and oppression. Pay no attention to that Pharaoh behind the curtain. And hundreds and hundreds of years later, another king, frightened of baby boys, issued another edict to kill all the baby boys. But 
pay no attention to that Herod behind the curtain because despite all of Herod's efforts to eliminate the threat, the deliverer was born. Jesus Christ was born, and he delivered his people from the tyranny and the slavery of sin and death. Our Savior was born. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, that Pharaoh behind the curtain, that Herod behind the curtain. God has complete control. Fear him and him alone.